Welcome to the fourth in our series of C-Suite podcast. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and in today's show, rather than focus on specific sectors as we've uh, done in previous shows, we're instead discussing the topic of moving from social media to social business. I'm therefore thrilled that we've grabbed some time with Andrew Grill, who is a global partner for social business at IBM's Global Business Services, and he talks uh, regularly on this topic, and in fact has just arrived back this morning uh, from the latest leg of what seems like a presentation tour, uh, having just been to the Brand Innovators event in New York. Um, Also joining me here in the studio, as CIPR Broadcast Partners USP content is Ben Smith. Ben's founder of PRMoment.com. Um, he's been a great advocate to this series, having hosted them on his website, so it's great that we've finally got him on the show this time. And finally, we also welcome Emma Hazan, who is uh, Deputy Managing Director of Hotwire PR, um, and also the first agency side guest we've had on the series. So look forward to Emma's views um, on the topic. So, Andrew, firstly, uh, welcome back to the UK. I understand you've uh, just got off the plane. Thanks for coming straight to the studios. I, I guess probably the best place to start is with yourself. Um, maybe you can explain how you define a social business. I've got a great quote, which I'll use in a moment, but I suppose the question is, why are we talking about social business? Haven't we still been talking about social media? And I think the the issue is that, you know, I've been playing with this social media stuff for a while. In fact, back in 2008 in London, there was a group of, uh, I suppose you'd call them social media geeks, who would meet once a week at a thing called the Tuttle Club. It was either a pub or a coffee shop, and we'd talk about social media. And back in 2008, we were hoping that one day brands would take this seriously and there'd be a career for us. I think in 2014, we've actually got our wish almost the wrong way and that brands take it so seriously, they see social media as just another channel to pump out content. So when we talk about social business, this for me is where the next phase of social is. It's when you actually get social um, content, uh, social media uh, deep inside the organisation. So rather than just the marketing department or the PR department worrying about what people are saying, What about having the content that's relevant to the organisation in the HR department get to where it needs to be or in the supply chain area? And when I mention those areas of a business to people about where social can be effective, they say, can we do that? So I think when we actually give it a different name and we sort of shift, as we've said in the title, from social media to social business, it really is trying to get social deep inside the organisation. The quote I use about what is a social business is that a social business is an organisation whose culture and systems encourage networks of people to drive business value. Now, in that, there is no mention of fans or followers or likes or influencers. It's about culture, it's about people, and it's about business value. And we're talking about the C-suite. When I use that language with the C-suite, they get it and they say, Yes, we want to look at our culture. We want to you know, encourage our people to share and it's got to drive business value. And I think part of the problem with talking about the word social is it scares the C-suite. If I had a pound or a dollar or a euro for every time I said I was coming to talk about social and stopped there and they said, well, the Twitter team are third door on the right, go down yeah. there. It's really a business transformation discussion. And that's why I think it's important to to see it differently from just social media. So have you, have you seen that the ownership has historically sat with marketing or PR and and that's obviously been an issue? Yeah, and for the right reasons, because it's content, it's uh, customer facing, it's, it's business uh, intelligence. So uh, it's either been the PR, the marketing or the market research teams that I've dealt with. Uh, and when, again, you go and talk to the HR team, they, they say, can we have access to this? We, we don't read those monthly reports that get sent around about how many likes we've got because it doesn't make any sense to us. Mm. If you're able to tailor that, and, and I look at what I call federation, so a piece of social content comes into an organisation, some smart technology that front end says that's destined for the PR team or the HR team rather, 
then it gets to the right people quickly. Ben, you, you must have, um, in the events that you run and organise uh, through PR Moment, you must have sat through hundreds of presentations of sort of brands or agencies talking on various different topics of social media. But have, have you have any of sort of stood out for you that touch on social business or, or, or talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, just speaking broadly, first of all, I, I think the integration of social into the business is absolutely critical. Um, you cannot have one profile online and a different one offline. Um, and I, I think, I'd like to think anyway, we're kind of over that um, that stage of having a social part of the business and, a, and a, 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 an offline part of the business, as Andrew alludes to. Um, I think in recent times, and I think on a, on a, I see better examples as time goes by, actually, on this. This year, we've seen some really great examples of social campaigns that have had a positive impact on the business, both potentially from a reputation and brand perspective and also actually from an impact on sales perspective. I, I won't ream off loads of those, but No Makeup Selfie is clearly one that we've all heard of, although I do think charities probably have an unfair advantage in that ty- in this in this area. Um, Specsavers do some, some great work. Um, KLM have done a, a really great piece recently. Volvo Trucks. I mean, who'd have thought we'd be talking about Volvo, Volvo Trucks in a social sphere as much as we all do? Um, and, and GoPro. Um, I mean, GoPro. I, I kind of look forward to the, the latest um, GoPro video. It's you know, it's got to that extent. I haven't bought one yet, interestingly enough, but I, I, I guess at some point I will. Um, so I think the the impact of so the key is actually I think a really simple one is the social has to have a business impact. Um, and it does have a social impact, um, and I think the C-suite has got that, um, and therefore um, the increasing importance of social, that social has the businesses, um, we've seen huge progress of that over the last 12 months, 24 months. Um, for me, actually, the, the difficult bit, and possibly the more interesting bit, is the, the, the practical implications of how that integration happens on a day-to-day level, within large businesses. So the breaking down of those internal silos, not actually agency silos, but internal silos, I still think that's a challenge. Um, Ben mentioned uh, GoPro there. That's a nice link into uh, bringing Emma into the conversation, seeing as that's one of your clients. Um, One of our favourite clients. (laughs) Well, Emma, I mean, firstly, when I was researching the topic, I was uh, watching um, some of Andrew's presentations. Um, He did one a couple of weeks ago at the London Brand Innovators event. But in that, he was talking about um, sort of like there's an assumption that the C-suite don't get social and touched on it you know just before about um you know thinking of thinking in likes and uh, and and followers what would be good is um, you know from an agency perspective mm-hmm. just to get your view on sort of how the kind of questions that the c-suite clients you know pose to you um in terms of social media whether or not you agree that there's a lack of understanding in, in the boardroom I guess the kind of questions that the C-suite are asking us, it goes back to what Andrew was saying. It can't just be about the number of likes, the number of followers. So the question they're asking is, well, what value is social media going to bring me and how can I measure that? And that's really, it's the responsibility of whoever is owning social media in the organisation. It is usually on the marketing and the PR side. And that's up to us to be able to educate them in the fact that it isn't about the number of likes. It is about the ability to reach people with your message. It's another form of communication. You know, we've had to learn how to communicate in 140 characters or less. It's all going to change again in the next year or two with the smartwatch. We've now got an inch of real estate that we've now got to communicate with. So we're going to have to teach the C-suite about an even smaller screen and even smaller space to communicate with. 
with but it's really about how we can communicate with people and how we can have seamless content you know whether it's from the website whether it's from an interview that the ceo is doing or what we're tweeting about the content is seamless it's the same tone it's an idea of what the brand is trying to achieve and what the brand stands for so that's really that's one of the things that the c-suite are asking um they're also you know they're interested still in what are the risks to the business in us using social media and you know even more than that a lot of the ceos are asking us Am I going to have to tweet? I've got no idea what I'm doing. How, how do I do that? What do I have to tweet about? Can you help me? The irony is, is that most of the CEOs that I work with, they're born communicators. You know, they have to be. They have to communicate to their organisation every day. They need to motivate and empower people. So they're perfectly lined up to be on Twitter themselves and and, and talking to their customers directly. Um, but they just need a support parameters from someone like myself, from a marketing department, from a digital department to help them um, with what to say. Yeah. You talked about sort of like the new things that are, that are coming out, you know, obviously in the next 12, 24 months. How do you as an agency keep across all that? Well, again, it's it's um, from a communications point of view, it's, you know, more uh, what I've just said, you know, it's we've, we've had to communicate with 140 characters. How can we get our message across when it comes to the smartwatch with an even smaller space? How do we reach people but keep, keep the seamless content in, in whatever channel they're using? So for us, that's going to have to be us keeping up with making images more relevant, making video even better than before. So we've got to constantly keep evolving. But that also means constantly having that dialogue with the C-suite and bringing them into the conversation and getting their buy-in. So I just challenge you on there. The smartwatch, I think, is going to be an interesting piece of real estate, but I don't want content on my smartwatch. You know, I've worked in media and marketing for a long time, and I think the the vortex we get drawn into is, you know, here's social, it's another channel, let's pump some content down there. Every time I present, I show a one-minute video that was done by a BBC Three program called The Revolution Will Be Televised. And if I can uh, describe it in words, it's a guy who goes around in a park, sitting down next to people saying, can I be your friend? Would you like to see my photographs? And what I then do when I show that, everyone laughs at the same point. I've showed it hundreds of times in the last 18 months. But it's a nervous laugh because they go, we're doing that too. So I challenge them. After I've spoken, we normally have a coffee break. I say, go up to two people that are already having a conversation and try and get yourself into that conversation and see how long it takes. And for me personally, sometimes it takes seven seconds. They've mentioned somewhere in Australia and I can say, oh, I've been there. And they let me into the conversation because I have something of value to add. The challenge for brands at the moment and PR firms is they just want to get in there straight away with the message. And I think with social, the landscape is much different. You have to have something of value and be invited into that conversation. And if you try that at the pub and you walk up to someone and give them a message, and imagine if you took a marker pen out and wrote on their watch, they go, can you go away? Uh, so I think we need to understand that when it becomes when it comes to social, social media, social business, you have to have something of value to add to that conversation. So as a consumer, I'd like the ability to earn that trust. If you want to put a message on my watch, it's got to be so relevant, but I'm yet to meet a smart marketer that can do that. Last eight years I've been on Twitter, I've had 32,000 tweets. I'm yet to find a brand that's used that valuable content and pitched a message to me. And that, as a marketer, makes me upset. Yeah, yeah. I th- well, I, th- I think there's a balance on both sides because I, I, I agree. I think if you've, if you've chosen to follow a brand, let's say, and the content is relevant then I think that makes sense. But I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the taking Twitter as an example, the promoted tweets that appear in my feed that have got literally no interest to me. And what's interesting, I actually find sometimes, is I, sometimes I do click on them just to see the comments 
that people have responded and quite often you'll get a promoted tweet from a bank and then you'll see how people have responded and you think, well, that was a money well worth It's the same as the bank going into the pub and saying, hey, we've got a great interest rate. It's not relevant. But it depends because... For specifically, if we're going to go down the smartwatch route and what I was talking about with images or video, then I think you've got to move away from Twitter as the example there and look at Instagram. Yeah. yeah. And then if you're looking at Instagram, and let's um, an example is um, Audi. Um, people that follow the uh, Instagram account for Audi, they're interested in cars. They want loads of pictures of cars. That's all they want. Recently, they tried to do something really strange with a campaign where they were trying to to take the away from cars and all about some sort of innovation using chefs and people were going what are you talking about i've got no interest in this on my instagram account give me cars or i'm not following you so it's not that that a stranger is walking into a pub and showing a, a punter a picture of a car it's that person in the pub is a car fan wants to see those pictures so it's okay for yeah. you to give them that content so if we then say well audi the punter has got his smartwatch and he follows Audi and Audi's sending him something really cool about a car on his watch. That's cool. That's okay. And then you can take it a stage further. Look at your Facebook feed. Now you've got videos that automatically start playing as you're going down your um, your news feed. And some of them are great. And actually what I love is that they already start playing before I've even clicked on them. So I get more of an idea of what I want to, that I want to watch it. It's tempting me already. And I think it could go that way with a smartwatch. I could be wrong. Though. I think we have to be careful and we look, need to <coughs> respect permission. And I think Absolutely. there are lots of lazy yeah. marketers out there that just say, you know, if I see another pre-ticked box on a form, I'm going to scream. Yeah. And when I go and say that's lazy marketing and I, as a marketer, I sometimes get held out of the room. But, but consumers have a right to actually control that. And I'd rather be a marketer who knew that my audience really wanted my content and were opting in, for example, rather than just spamming them. So I think you're right. It's a really fine balance. And like I said, back to my initial chat eight years ago, we were hoping brands would take this seriously. They're almost taking it too seriously. It's kind of, we need to step back and understand how to use this media. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I want to move on to another topic because, and you mentioned that presentation where you had the video. I did watch it. And I I actually laughed at the bit where the guy was walking around with a big stick poking people. Although that seems to have disappeared from sort of I don't know if people still poke each other on Facebook who knows but um on on that there was there was an area that I found interesting because you talk about a the reason you're at IBM is because of a tweet that you sent in 2011 I'll let you share that that story and and funny but and and sorry and and you talk about the fact that you know that led to you know various different sort of posts um through social media and and in a way as I said it's similar because the reason you're here is I posted a note on LinkedIn I've got 2,000 connections on on LinkedIn I asked for some recommendations um there's a guy who I promised a shout out to so Jeremy Jacobs you can follow him at, at Jeremy Jacobs he recommended you I followed you up followed that up on LinkedIn and here you are now and that's you, you you talk about that in a as um, being socially eminent. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe you can expand on that. What that means and, and and why it's important to sort of be out there. Well, the first part is actually social serendipity. Um, right. The okay. fact that I'm uh, here because of that one tweet on the fifteenth of January two thousand and eleven. I literally tweeted arrive San Francisco. What happened next with another Australian who I hadn't never met at that stage, saw it, said, let's have lunch. That led to an introduction to the company I ran called Cred. Having been at Cred for about 18 months, IBM approached me. So it was a nice chain of events, but that's happened multiple times. And I think part of it is, um, again, back to the PR thing, being visible, being relevant and being seen as someone who knows what they're talking about. There's a fine line between eminence and influence and earned influence. And I, I spoke about this in New York a couple of days ago. If you see someone that says they're influential on their blog or their Twitter, they're not. Having run Cred for two years, I, it was a really fascinating social experiment of having people ring you up to say, Andrew, I'm so influential. 
and then doing the analysis to work out that really they weren't. They weren't producing any new content. They just were very noisy. And so um, I'm delighted to be here as a result of a whole lot of different exchanges. But I've, in, in a way, earned my, my right at this table today because other people have said, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. And you can't say that yourself as much as you'd like to sometimes. So there is this self-promotion versus if you're good at what you're doing and you uh, say the same thing, in a, you know, the social proof and you have a, a regular thing that you talk about, things can happen. And so you know, at IBM, we very much value this notion of eminence. And so we have 400,000 odd employees. And if just a small percentage of those are eminent and they can spread the message, then we have these employee advocates. It's a whole other topic, but how do you authentically talk about what your company is doing without it becoming an ad? And I think in the days of social and social media and social business, you have an opportunity to leverage your employees. So um, it's it's something that hasn't happened overnight. It's been a number of years to get to that point. But I love it. And I think someone asked me the other day how it works, and it, it has to have a feedback loop. Four or five years ago, I was at a conference. Someone tapped me on the shoulder, saw my name badge, and said, oh, I read your blog. There was a feedback loop where I saw that my content was relevant and useful. So I keep writing. When we talk about chief execs and why they should tweet and why they should get involved, they sometimes find it hard to start. But when they have that feedback moment and someone says, it was great you were available and could actually tell me what was going on with the company, they personally go, oh, that was okay, I'll do that again. So I think it is it, it's down to the cultural thing where you, as a human being, you need to know that what you're doing is is relevant and useful. Uh, but it, it's fun and I, I love being asked to speak all over the world. But do you, Ben, do you, when you're finding your speakers at events, do you use recommendations and like in terms of putting a, I mean, I suppose the question I want to ask is, can you put a price on, on social eminence? Well, let, let me come to that in, in a minute, but just to sort of come to Andrew's point, I think, I think digital and social has given PR actually a, a big opportunity to really demonstrate its, it, well, it's ROI actually, because it, social creates digital footprint, which becomes trackable. And undoubtedly, social eminence on a personal level or from a brand perspective ties into that. And from that, once you have social eminence, once you have a social, imp- um, a social footprint, a digital imprint, you can then track your, your impact and your contribution to whatever objective it is you're trying to hit. And, and the key thing I think here is that you know, I don't think anyone owns social. No one's ever going to. You, you might as well ask who, who owns a telephone. But the key is that PR people should be good at two-way conversations and driving engaging content. And not, not all, P, all, P, all PR people are, but they should be. As a general rule of thumb, that should be within their skill set, probably more so um, more than any other marketeers. Um, and there's an opportunity for public relations as a function to, I don't know, dominate, dominate's probably too strong, but, but have a significant impact on, on that area. In terms of our conferences... To try and sum it up is difficult. Sometimes it's a subject area I know, so therefore I'll know who the key people are, and other times it takes some research. Um, but pretty much all the time what we end up with is different from what I think I when I start out on my journey, p- partly because of availability, yeah. um, but also depends where the event is and, and you know and which agency was involved, et cetera, et cetera. Change of topic, um, still social, another another uh, term, social collaboration, um, which is something that, Andrew, you, you, you talk um, quite a bit about in your presentations. So Do you want to explain what that is and, and why it's so important? Well, it's just bringing all this knowledge inside the heads of all of our employees to, to bear. I think at the moment, again, it's a cultural thing, that people think information is power and by holding it close to their chest, they're more powerful. 
I think in the future, though, your value to an organization won't be what you know, it will be what you share. And so I'm a big advocate of that. And so why I, I speak publicly and internally so much is that I want to share what I know to give other people the sound mites and the confidence to do things. But, it, but is that partly from a selfish perspective? Because if you share, you'll then get recommended? Uh, I don't think of it no. that way. I, for, for years, I, I, I would class myself as a communicator. I started life actually as a trainer. So I knew things. And by actually telling someone else what I knew, they had more value. And I got a real buzz out of you know training someone on what this new software package was or whatever. And they would then be enabled. And that, and that really that feedback loop happened where I felt good about telling someone what I knew so they knew as much as I did. If there's a byproduct that I get to speak at conferences and, and on a podcast, that's great. But I think if you do that across the whole organisation, but that is a massive cultural change. And I'll give you an example. We've just finished a big job with Tesco uh, and they have in the UK about 320,000 colleagues. And their HR director came to us saying, we'd love to be able to connect with, with all of our colleagues more, 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 um, more dynamically. And they use an internal social collaboration network. So for us, it wasn't about technology. It was about a cultural change. How do you encourage and incent people to share what they know across the organisation using some technology? So the example is someone who is in the fish counter in Kensington, can share how they stack their fish today with someone in the Croydon um, store because they said, this really works and they sold more fish because of the way I did it. Oh, that's great. Thanks very much. Now, in the future, to your point, uh, Ben, maybe you can actually value that. And our CEO, Ginny Rometty, said about 18 months ago, maybe in the future, if we can measure this, it might be if someone at IBM shares more than someone else, they might get a higher compensation because their value to the organisation is higher. That will drive a behaviour where people will go, how do I become like Ben and Andrew? Because they get the best projects, they get the best clients, they get the best bonuses. I'll mirror their behavior. Then it doesn't become a game. It becomes standard practice. And everyone goes, you know, the, the good example is, you know, I'm an organization. We've got some problem with a product, but the person who knows how to fix it is Barry in accounts because he knows how this product works. Yeah. But you yeah. would never thought to have contacted Barry in accounts, but by sharing this using the internal social network. The other thing out of that that people don't realise also is the digital exhaust out of that. If you have people collaborating openly on an internal social network, today we spend lots of money on products like Radian 6 and Brandwatch measuring the external social. Measure the same things inside an organisation. You'll see the ideas pop up, the trends, the issues. Then an HR director can say, rather than every, uh, every 12 months doing a performance review and looking at what people are saying, I've got a live dashboard. I know where there are problems in my company. Yeah. That's the real power of social business because then it's not about fans and likes and followers. It's about business value. It's about culture change. And it's actually using people to help change things so that customers have better yeah. experiences. Well, Andrew's talking um, there, you're talking about sort of like large organisations. I mean, Emma, I, looking at your business on your, on your website, I get the impression this is you know that you have that kind of culture I've, you know reading it on, on the site it says uh, you've got international teams working across 22 locations in the US Australia New Zealand across Europe but the, the bit that that stood out for me is it says you have a one office mentality so mm -hmm. would it be fair to say that you collaborate socially and, and if so how do you achieve it so we have a um we you know we are a very close organization we know each other for all intents and purposes across europe we'll have training together we have a lot of accounts globally so we know each other well anyway we'd like to say we did implement an enterprise social network about 18 months ago and i'd say it has fundamentally changed how we work um, as a global organization because you know, you can't communicate as a whole organisation on email because you'd never get through 
all the emails from your clients because you've got all these internal emails going on. So what we use um, this convo for is we have cross-border brainstorms and discussions. So we were working on a pitch last month and it was actually only for three different um, offices, but we invited different people from different you know, different um, offices to participate in the brainstorm. And actually the killer idea came from Javier in our Spanish office. Spain weren't even participating in the in the pitch and, and we won it based on Javier's idea, which is awesome, which normally you just wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. You don't have the time. You're not going to send it over to the Spanish team to have them have their own brainstorm. It's great. You do lots of different things, obviously, as an office to come up with ideas, but to be able to reach people in different offices and and you just become much more of a global thinking organization by having a wider pool of people to talk to and an understanding of of what the brand means to to you rather than just you in the UK. Um, so that's worked really well. We do a lot of sharing of information and articles. You actually work out what other offices, what they use as their news sources. Javier doesn't read El País. He actually gets most of his news from um, the Daily Mail, which is completely bizarre. But it shows, first of all, it shows you, you know, the breadth of the of the following of the Daily Mail. But they're actually reading English newspapers and sources for their information. So that's also really interesting. And I just think it's just made us much more um, open as an organisation. But the other thing I would say is you don't have to spend the money necessarily on getting in an enterprise social network. There are some PR agencies listening to this going, we're never going to be able to do that. Facebook at work is coming, but even before it's coming, you can open a private group on Facebook as an organisation and go from there. And I think it's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, we're going to have to finish this off, but I want to ask, I, I want to do that by asking all, all three of you... Um, for an example of like a classic mistake that you're you're seeing companies make with social media in general, and and then maybe name one organisation, uh, IBM aside, of course, Andrew, um, who who you think already acts as a social business, um, but but what it is that you think that makes them different that we can learn from. So uh, Emma, let's start let's start with you. Um, okay, so classic mistakes that um, brands are making. Lack of social training in people that are tweeting, whether it's from your official Twitter feed or you as a VP of marketing or VP of content, whatever it is. An example of that is PayPal. Um, So there was this global strategy director that was employed. He went out one night in New Orleans, got really, really drunk and started using his Twitter feed to basically slag off other members of, of, of his company for the whole world to see um literally within 24 hours he was sacked paypal issued an apology said he no longer works for the company that's basic social training there's also basic manners as well to be honest but that that for me is is a key example there of of you know you've got to make sure that everyone in your organization toes the line when it comes to social media and an example of someone that's doing social business well i heard that um boots so they're based in nottingham they've got a huge campus they have an enterprise social network purely for social so for saying where they're going out tonight, what parties are going on, because it is, you know, imagine like a Google campus, but in Nottingham and its boots. And I think that's cool. So they're, they're realising there's so many people at this organisation, but how can we get them to be friends as well as yeah. colleagues? And Excellent. that's cool. Nice. Good examples. Ben? I think the, the one for me that is connectivity between the different bits of, of interaction within organisations. So, for example, if you complain about something on Twitter, it's so frustrating, isn't it? Say, oh, we can't sort that on Twitter. You'll have to ring up this number. Uh, and then needless to say, you have to go and hold for half an hour and then you get cut off. And it's just, you know, it's just so frustrating as a, as a customer. But I, I would put a reality point in there that I think we're on a spectrum, aren't we, between good and bad practice. And if you're dealing on things 
on scale, it's difficult to get it right every time. And probably as a customer, I don't expect you to get it right every time, but I expect you to try. The people who get it right, I'm not sure everyone gets it right all the time. Um, I think O2 do some really interesting stuff on that customer services stuff by, and they push the boundaries pretty hard in terms of the use of humour. Um, so I've been impressed by that. And finally, Andrew? Well, I coined this um, phrase the other day that the social switchboard, and I think a lot of companies are falling into the trap where they have a team managing the social uh, presence. And so a tweet or a Facebook post comes in, and it's a bit like calling a switchboard. I don't know about you, but I haven't called a switchboard in 10 years. Uh, I know how to people get people directly. I can email them. I can tweet them or whatever. But I think we're seeing these functions in organisations where everything comes into the social team, and when they've got time, and they then pass it on. In the future, it'll be federated. So um, as I said before, this bit of content will come in. There'll be some intelligence there. It'll go off to the right per- person. Otherwise, that has become the switchboard. And the other thing that really irks me is everyone says, oh, we're doing uh, monthly social media reports. And one of my um, one of the companies I spoke with basically emails that are around and they can't collaborate on it. Um, so I just facepalm for that. Yeah. Examples of companies doing it well, I'll nominate Hotwife. What you said is the poster child and sells why you should collaborate because Javier in the Spanish office, you would never have thought to collaborate and use his intelligence. He's now in the mix. So anyone listening to this, um, again, you don't have to go and spend a lot of money. You just need to start doing it because you will unlock this value you never thought. But guess what's happening? The millennials that want to come and work for your companies expect you're doing it. If they turn up and you haven't got an internal network, they're going to go, I made the wrong choice. I'll go and talk to another company. So it is now career limiting to not collaborate for two reasons. One is you won't attract the talent you need. Um, Superb. This has been absolutely brilliant uh, discussion. I'm discussion. I'm sure we can keep going uh, for a lot longer. I don't know that the guys in the studio will be uh, in in our production team here would be too happy about that. So we're going to have to finish off. But I mean, yeah, that's that's it for this month's podcast. Fascinating discussion. I want to thank again Emma Hazan from Hotwire, uh, PR Moments, Ben Smith and Andrew Grill from uh, IBM. Thanks, obviously, to the guys here at USP Content for hosting and recording the show. Don't forget um, to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, we're desperate to get up the, uh, the iTunes podcast chart. So thanks for listening and goodbye.